0: Good morning. I was watching 60 Minutes several years ago and they were interviewing Captain Sullenberger, the pilot of US Airways 1549 that crash landed safely into the Hudson River. And after that interview, the interview team went with Captain Sullenberger and the rest of the flight crew to a hotel banquet room in New York City to meet the passengers and their families of Flight 1549. And in that banquet room, one by one, the passengers and their families came up to the pilot and his crew to thank them for their expertise in saving their lives. But it was one little boy that caught my attention. One little boy, he's probably four or five years old, he runs up to Captain Sully and he grabs him around the leg and he looks up into the eyes of Captain Sullenberger and he says, Thank you for saving my daddy. I'm watching that scene alone in the basement of our house and My heart's flooded with emotion. I'm moved. And then not long after that, I was on a plane from Nassau to Dallas, returning home from speaking at a missions conference in the Bahamas. And yes, they do have missions conferences in the Bahamas. (laughs) And I was reading at that time what was the national best-selling book called The Last Lecture by Randy Posh. It's a book that tells of his last lecture that Randy gave at Carnegie Mellon, where he taught computer science. You see, at age 47, Randy was dying of pancreatic cancer. And knowing that he was dying, he poured out his heart to his students about what he had learned about life and work and marriage. And at the end of that emotionally charged speech, because it was his wife's birthday, they bring out this big cake and the the packed crowd in that hall starts to sing happy birthday to his wife. Let me just read for you how Randy describes that moment. I really had no idea what I would say after the audience saying happy birthday to my wife. But I urged her to come on stage, and as she came forward, a natural impulse overtook me. I embraced and I kissed her, first on the lips and then on the cheek, and the crowd, they just kept applauding. And we heard them. We could hear that they were out there, but it was like they were miles away. As we held each other, she whispered something in my ear. She said, Randy, please don't die. And I'm sitting on this American Airlines jet reading this, and I'm surrounded by Donna, my wife, and our two of our daughters, Gabby and Mallory, and, and I tear up. I, I'm moved because I can only imagine what Randy's wife was experiencing at the thought of losing this one that she loved so much. And, and honestly, it's one of the biggest fears of my life losing Donna. So I'm feeling what Randy's wife is feeling, her pain, her tears, and tears well up in my eyes, and I got caught because I'm sitting on that plane, and Donna looks at me, and he's like, are you all right? I was moved. I was moved a lot summer before last as I sat by the bedside of my dying mom, I held her hand, Spent those last few days with her. You've had those kind of experiences, haven't you? Where you've been moved. It's part of being human. We we have emotions and we experience things and we see things and we're emotionally moved. And so it's not surprising then that when the biographers of Jesus, who was God in the flesh, when they wrote about his life, they described him as often being moved. They talk about him being moved with compassion. For instance, John Barzebede, in his short biography of Jesus, wrote about a time when Jesus and his disciples went to a town where a friend of Jesus, a dear friend of Jesus, had passed away. They're there to visit the family, and it's, it's an emotional scene that John describes in John chapter 11, verses 32 to 35. And it's in these verses that we get a glimpse of Jesus. We get a glimpse of an understanding of who God is. A view of God that we all need to truly understand. Listen, this is how John describes it. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and sang to him, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the Jews that had come along with her were also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And in that moment, Jesus said to her, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, John describes him as being deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Then he steps near the tomb of his friend and again John describes Jesus as being deeply moved. In those days when the word deeply moved or disturbed or troubled was used, sometimes it was used to describe animal sounds and it denoted a loud cry, a snorting of horses. And when it was used to describe human emotions, it emphasized this mixture of both anguish And rage. Jesus groans from the depth of his spirit. Those groans and that sorrow racked his body. It shook the tombs and echoed back from them. And the word that the gospel writers continually use about Jesus is being moved with compassion. And when they speak of that, they really are metaphorically speaking. It's a deep emotional sensation. These days and times we'd probably use a phrase like, Gut-wrenching or heartbroken. And as you read through the gospels, you begin to see what moved Jesus. What deeply troubled him? A leper. One who had been ostracized from the community. One who was had no place in the, in the city center, who, who had to live alone. Jesus sees a leper and he's moved with compassion. A widow. A widow walking beside the coffin of her one and only son. Jesus sees that condition of that widow and he's moved with compassion. Jesus sees two blind men and he's moved with compassion. Jesus felt compassion when he saw the crowds who were starving for bread. It moved him. But there's one story. In particular, that I want us to look at this morning. And it's found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 36. If you have a copy of scriptures, please open them to Matthew chapter 9. Here's how Matthew records Jesus being moved with compassion, beginning at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. Back in 1284, this guy, Salvino Del Marte, is credited for inventing the first wearable glasses, for which I'm really grateful. i had have to stand up here and hold these things the whole time. Right? Then about 500 years later, Benjamin Franklin came up with bifocals, which increasingly, as years go by, I'm also grateful for. Now I know some of you look at us who wear glasses and think, I'd like to be really cool like that, so I too want to wear glasses. So you make it a fashion statement, but ultimately, the reason why you wear glasses, the reason I wear glasses is so I can see. It helps clarify my vision. Don't you wish sometimes you could buy glasses for people that would make them see the world as you see it? You ever had this experience where you're having let's call it a discussion with your spouse or your kids or your parents or your work colleague at work and they just you just can't conv- you just can't get them to see it your way what if you could just hand them glasses and they put them on and they're like you're right Tim you're absolutely right I see it I get it now Sometimes I wish we could maybe buy 536 pairs of glasses and Take them to Washington, D.C. Jesus saw the crowds. Through the lenses of Jesus, he sees these crowds. Now remember, this is not a crowd that is gathered to (laughs) applaud Jesus. Yay, you're the best, Jesus. They're not there to bring huge offerings to him and crown him king. Because remember how Matthew describes him? sick, they're diseased, they're demon-possessed. They are in deep need. This is a line of people, this is a crowd of folks who have come because they want something from Jesus. You maybe had that experience as as a mom with little kids, and you just say, just leave me alone, right? You escape to the bathtub just to find a moment of where somebody doesn't need you. Or there's a line of people at the shop where you work, who want your attention, the phone continues to ring, and you just want to say, "Go away." And if I'm Jesus and I see this motley crew that's out there, that's what I'm thinking. I thinking I've had a long day. We'll try this again tomorrow. But Scripture tells us, Matthew tells us, as I'm watching Jesus, here's what I see Jesus do, Matthew says, "He's moved. He's not mad. He's not oh, more pests. More needy people. He's moved with compassion. And moving didn't stop there, right? It didn't just stop with a feeling. So here's what we're wrestling with this weekend, really, as we think about missions. How do we see the crowds? How do we see the needy, the lost, who, who live lives and maybe hold values that don't match our own? I, I hear sometimes, and I'm, I'm a bit intrigued by I hear sometimes Christians getting mad at sinners for living like sinners. Being frustrated with them. But see, those outside of Christ are not, or should not be targets of our disgust and rage. But instead, they should be recipients of our compassion. I think our problem sometimes is is that in the wild fury and rush of life, we lose God's perspective. We lose the lenses of Jesus. We forget that we're here on this earth not for our greater comfort, our greater achievement, but we are here to see and to care for people the way the Lord saw and cared for them. Jesus sees people, and he's moved with compassion, and he's moved to action. When we see people, what do we do? We are the visible body of Christ on this earth. And as his body, we are to have his eyes. We are to have Jesus' eyes. But here's what I find in my own life, and I bet it's true for you too. Sometimes we start to see people the way the religious people of Jesus' day saw them. Remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 10? You know this story. Jesus tells a story about a, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers and who stripped and beat him and left him half dead. Now by chance, Jesus says, a priest. Good, right? This priest guy's dying. A priest is coming. A priest is going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, another religious person, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took, him, took care of him and Then the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay it when I come back. Notice the contrast here. Two religious people come by and you think, this is the answer to this man's problem. He's in dire need. These religious people, this priest, this Levite, they will save him. They will stop. Stop. But these guys are busy, right? They're on their way to a prayer meeting. They're on their way to a missions conference. They're on their way to teach a seminary class. They don't have time for the half-dead man on the side of the road. But instead, the most unlikely of characters stops, sees, and gets moved. And he's not moved to the other side of the street like the priest and the Levite. He is moved to do something about it in a very sacrificial way. When was was the last time you were moved like that? The way this Samaritan was? The way Jesus was? When was the last time the helpless and harassed of this world shook our lives to the point where We stepped out of our routine. We got out of our way. And we had true compassion on them. That's that's really what this weekend is all about. It it gives us a chance to to clear our vision, to, to put on Jesus' lenses, if you will. And we need times like that in our lives because that jar us from our complacency and our cynicism, that, that move us out of our comfort zone and cause us to begin to see the crowds, to feel their pain, to, to be up against their frustrations and to be engulfed with their suffering and their spiritual need. And then, like Jesus, to be moved with compassion, to be moved to action. Because if you read the rest of that passage in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus just didn't feel something and move on. I, you do that, don't you? I do. I mean, I see a, a television advertisement for, for some poor child in Africa, and I think, oh, but then the next commercial comes on, and I'm, I'm over it. I hear a heart-wrenching story about someone who's in great need, and you're like, oh, and then, boom, it's, it passes by. But Scripture tells us that Jesus was moved, and that got him involved, right? He, he starts to preach the good news. He starts to heal and meet the needs of those needy people. Verse 37 tells us it moves him to prayer. And he tells his disciples, pray for more labors. There's a lot of needy people out there. We need to be praying. As you move into chapter 10, he tells us that he's moved to send these disciples out now. He says, "You, you go. Let's multiply our work here. You go where the needy are. Jesus' move of compassion. Being moved with compassion caused him to move into action. But you know what? It's not just Jesus. You, You read the New Testament and you get into the book of Acts. You begin to see Paul. Remember that time when Paul in Acts chapter 17? He's traveling and he's waiting for some of his buddies, his missionary team, to meet him in Athens. And he's walking around Athens. And here's how Luke describes it. He says, his spirit was provoked as he saw the city was full of idols. I was in Pakistan a number of years ago, and early morning, call a prayer, four or five in the morning, I hear this, and it's not just one mosque, but the whole landscape is full of mosques. It gripped my soul because I thought, wow, the millions of people who are calling out to a God who cannot save them. Maybe you've traveled to a place like Thailand or a place like Japan where there are shrines and temples that dot the landscape and you see people walk up and they ring a bell and they bow before it and you think they're bowing before a stone or a golden statue a rock a wooden carved wooden statue of a god or goddess that's how Paul was he's he's walking around Athens and he sees all these gods and goddesses that dot the landscape of Athens if you've been to Greece, you're, you could go to the, the ruins of Corinth, and as you walk down the roads of Corinth, the ruins of Corinth, you see on every side there's a temple for this God and a temple for that God. I said, every place is a different God or God. That's how Paul's feeling. He's walking through Athens, and his soul is troubled because he sees their need. I love how John Stott describes this. Listen to what he says. He says, we don't speak like Paul because we don't feel like Paul because we don't see like Paul. That was the order, right? Paul's in Athens. He sees. And what he sees causes him to feel. And it's from that feeling that he then speaks the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus and Paul. They see people. Not things, not projects to be fixed. They see people not as a means to an end, not as a means to gather a bigger crowd for them so that they can become more popular. They see people and it moves them because of their needs and they, they see and they feel and they speak. But I know I've caught myself speaking before I've ever seen or felt, haven't you? Like, yeah, I've got an opinion about that, but I'm ready to tell you something, but I've not even heard you. I've not seen you. How do we get there? How do we put on Jesus' eyes? You know, we can't go to Walgreens and purchase a pair of Jesus' glasses. How do we get there? I think it takes a dramatic paradigm shift in both sight and attitude. Because, see, instead of seeing people as enemies, as Terrorists, as foreigners, as illegals, as members of the LGBTQ movement, or Democrats, or Republicans. Instead of seeing them as those, we see them as Jesus did. Sheep without a shepherd. To whom we have the great privilege of introducing the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. In one of his books, Stephen Covey tells the story of being on a subway in New York City on a Sunday morning. You can imagine during the week the subways are crowded, packed full of people jammed in there, going to work. Sunday mornings a little quieter, a little calmer. People are going to museums, they're going to visit family, they're taking the day off. And so they're on the subway, they're drinking their coffee, they're reading their magazines. they're you know, they're just listening to music, and it's it's a pretty calm morning. McCovey says at one of the train stations, a man and his four kids get on board. Man sits right next to Stephen Covey and kind of closes his eyes and just bows his head. Not paying attention to anything that's going around. But the kids are, well, they take over the subway car. They're, they're hanging on the bars. They're knocking people's coffee over. They're crashing into newspapers. They're just raising havoc in the, in the subway car. And Covey's sitting there, and every moment that goes by, he's getting more angry. And you, you get it, right? I mean, you've seen other people's kids misbehave, right? Not yours. The other people's kids. But what do you do with other people's kids, right? I mean, this is. In the older days, you might could have scolded them and got away with it. Today, you're in for a lawsuit if you get onto somebody's kids, right? So Covey's just sitting there thinking, oh, man, come on, dude. Do something with your kids. So finally, he can't stand it anymore. He, he taps the guy who's sitting next to him and says, sir, I'm really sorry to bother you, but your kids are just raising havoc in here. Can you please do something about it? The guy kind of shakes his head and wakes up out of his stupor and he says, I am so sorry. You see, we just left the hospital where my wife and the mother of these four kids just died. He said, I don't know, and they don't know how to handle this. Covey said, I went from being mad. Thinking, man, why don't you do something about your kids too? What can I do to help? I'm so sorry. See, it's that kind of shift we need because we've we've gotten calloused and blind sometimes to the needs of others. We kind of walk on by. We do the priest and Levite thing, but it takes us being from being inoculated and kind of vaccinated against being moved with compassion to, okay, we got to do something. Because this compassion of Jesus, being moved with, like Jesus, having the eyes of Jesus, means we jump into action. And that kind of compassion asks us to go where it hurts. It asks us to go to dangerous places, to enter into places of pain, of brokenness and fear and confusion. That kind of compassion calls us to mourn with those who are mourned, to weep with those who are weeping. It requires us to engage. It's a call to action. A missionary by the name of Phil tells a story about how he and his colleague were watching children scavenge scavenge for food in mountains of garbage in a garbage dump outside of Manila. He said, the nauseating stench turned my stomach. Just the smell of it. But then he said, I saw a little boy struggle to turn over the carcass of a rotting dog to find something underneath it to eat. Then he said, my body convulsed. And I began to sob. Oh, God, please, please save these children. Bill was moved with compassion. And that move of compassion moved him to he and his colleagues to, to move into that area and to do what he can to serve those children. See, Jesus' compassion for the crowds of hurting people of this world ignited and fueled his mission on this earth as it should ours. But here's the danger we wrestle with, right? That we isolate ourselves from the needs of others. We can find our own vaccine to inoculate us against it, right? To being concerned. We can find entertainment, we can find our work, we can bury ourselves in something else and walk right on by the needs of others. But if we are truly going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, if we as a church are going to call ourselves the body of Christ, we're going to have to put on the eyes of Jesus and allow the needs the lostness of humanity, to move us to action. And when we do that, we look and act a lot like Jesus. So can I plead with you this weekend to, to take a look at the world through the eyes of Jesus? To take a look at your neighbor, that, that girl that wakes on you at Dunkin' Donuts tomorrow morning, your coworker. Who maybe you don't care that much for? Can I challenge you to see them through the eyes of Jesus? And when you do, when you see them, don't just see and move on. Feel, and then speak, and act. The problem is we have been bombarded, haven't we? We've been bombarded with so many images that we become callous to it. Sometimes we we've trained our hearts not to feel. This overflow of emotion has, instead of making us more sensitive, sometimes it's caused us to be calloused. We do that, don't we? We, we see the news about the suffering around the world, and yet our, we don't change our habits of consumption. We see the treatment of social outcasts, and we leave them out there on their own. We see the numbers of the lost, and they're staggering. And it doesn't move us. You, you realize 27% of this world's population has no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So about one out of every four people in this world woke up this morning in a town, a village, with no access to the gospel of Jesus There's not a church. I'm not talking not just an e-free church. All right? There's not a church. There's not a missionary there. There's not a national believer there that can tell them about the gospel. One out of four people woke up this morning without access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means two out of seven people. Count them, right? Just count seven and like two of us would have no access to the gospel. That should cause us to see the needs of this world and to be moved. To be actively involved in Intentionally doing something about the fulfillment of the mandate of Christ to take the gospel to every single creature of this world. Back in 1959, right after the death of the Russian dictator, Joseph Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev, who succeeded Stalin as the leader of the Soviet Union, gave a speech to the Soviet Politburo in which he absolutely trashed Stalin and his multitude of brutal atrocities soon after that famous speech Khrushchev visited the United States and he was scheduled to speak at the National Press Club in Washington DC and because all the reporters were expecting more fireworks for Khrushchev the room was packed that day with reporters from every possible news outlet and Khrushchev did not disappoint once again he delivered a potent indictment of his former boss and once he had finished delivering his denouncement of Stalin The floor was opened up for questions, and from the back of this packed room, an unidentified reporter called out, Mr. Khrushchev, you have just given us an account of Stalin's many crimes against humanity. However, you were his right-hand man during much of that time. What were you doing to stop it? And it took a few moments for that question to be translated back into Russian, but once it finally was, Khrushchev exploded in anger. Who said that? And you just stared at the room, and there was silence. No one dared look up at him unless they be fingered as the one who asked, and they all just kind of stared at their shoes. It's kind of like when I ask a question in class, and everybody's all of a sudden shoestrings are the most interesting thing in the world. So he screamed again, who said that? And after this long, awkward period of silence where no one dared move, Khrushchev finally said, that's what I was doing. Nothing. I did nothing. That's an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? The one where we do nothing about something so important. We see things happen in our work, in our nation, in our neighborhood, that are so destructive. We're bombarded by human atrocities. We're bombarded by stats about the loss of this world. And we kind of hopelessly sigh and shake our head and mumble, oh my goodness, that's awful. But in the end, we do nothing. The theme for this weekend, for this missions conference, is today i will and the scripture passage that the missions committee chose was 1 corinthians 13 verses 4 and 5 and most of you know 1 corinthians 13 because it's a love chapter right where it describes how love is and jesus is a perfect example of that and jesus really models for us how to live that love out but today today i will what if what if instead of viewing the loss of this world through our cataract eyes we start every day to put on the lenses of Jesus and we start to see people with Jesus eyes what if today we made the radical commitment that starting today every morning I will get up and I will put on the eyes of Jesus as I drive to work and as I get to work and as I interact with colleagues as I meet up with people that maybe share very different views and hold very different lifestyles than I am comfortable with but I will see them through the eyes of Jesus and see them as helpless and harassed and sheep without a shepherd. See, I'm confident on a weekend like this, God is dealing with somebody's heart about being one who will go to one of those two out of seven people that have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I look through the booklet of the folks that your church supports, and I'm thrilled to see that many of your missionaries are serving in some of those most unreached places. Thanks be to God for that. But those are hard places. Those are not easy places to be. But not all of you are going to go and serve cross culturally. I get that. But guess what? Your, Your responsibility concerning the mandate of Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the rest of the world doesn't stop with I'm not called to be a missionary. Because if you're not going, you too have responsibilities as a disciple of Jesus. To beseech the Lord of the harvest, to send forth workers. We need more workers out there. We need people who will take the gospel to these most unreached places. If you're not going, will you pray that God would raise up people out of your congregation to go? And then when they emerge, will you as a congregation get behind them and say, We will get you there. Being moved by, with compassion causes us to pray, but it also causes us to send people out into the harvest. How can, we, how can we claim to be followers of Jesus, the body of Christ, if we don't see like him? If we don't go to work and engage our neighborhoods and our cities and nations with Jesus' eyes? Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion and that compassion moved him to action and prayer and sending. Let's make this weekend, the weekend where we say starting today, today I will, I'll see the world. I'll see humanity through the eyes of Jesus because remember Jesus's commandment to his disciples. Open your eyes, disciples, open them. Open your eyes and look out at the fields. They are white and ready.